0: Um, okay, so this is uh, uh, this Shi'ur is going to be devoted or this series is going to be devoted to something called Midrash, which everybody has kind of uh, a, a passing familiarity with and we've always heard and we oftentimes hear rabbis. Usually we hear Midrashim either in books on parashat HaShavua, uh, we encounter them, or in speeches that people give or devour where they say, oh, the Midrash says this or the Midrash says that, um, which kind of contributes to A general uh, lack of rigor in our study of Midrash, we take the Midrashim as very entertaining. A lot of times they say very fanciful things, things that really um, play on our imagination and they sound, uh, you know, they sound fascinating about angels doing all kinds of interesting things or different characters uh, uh, crossing the uh, time-space continuum into different eras of you know, and, and things like that. And it's really fascinating and really, you know, very memorable or, you know, characters being 50 feet tall and another person having arms that stretch, you know, uh, 50 feet long. All, all kinds of very, very interesting things that if you read the Torah, or you read the Tanakh, you don't see any evidence of, um, uh, of such fanciful descriptions. But in the Midrash, you hear them all the time. And usually those midrashim are the ones that stand out to us the most. Now, the reason why I mentioned where we usually encounter midrash is that unlike, see, kids hear midrashim when they're in school, in elementary school, and adults usually only see them either when they're reading something light on parashat HaShavuah or when they're listening to speeches and divrei Torah about parashat HaShavuah. Now, why is that noteworthy? It's noteworthy to my mind because it means that we generally encounter these texts in a less rigorous setting. It's like when you're studying Gemara, or you're studying even Mishneh of the Rambam, or you're studying Halakha, or you're studying Tanakh in a serious format, you're sitting around the table, or you're sitting in a classroom with a book in front of you, and you're really engaging with the text, and you're analyzing it, and every issue that doesn't exactly fit, or it doesn't seem right, or, or you have a question on it, or it doesn't flow, you're asking all of these questions, and you're challenging, and that's especially in Gemara you see that. Right? But when it comes to Midrash, you just kind of hear Oh yeah, Moshe Rabbeinu was 15 feet tall And Og was like 60 feet tall And that's totally normal you know? And you don't really like uh, You don't really wonder whether that makes Sense to you or not Because usually, again, you're usually in a context Which is not interactive Not really rigorous context So there's not really, you're not going to raise your hand in the middle Of the rabbi's speech and say, excuse me you know, what, what, does that really, what does that really mean? You know So the uh, uh, So Midrashim are presented to us In contexts that are typically uh, Less rigorous than other Jewish texts That's one point to keep in mind And then Midrash of course by its very nature I argue what I, what I argue and what I would like to try to convince you of And persuade you of And will be the deciding factor Whether you come back for another session of this uh, series or not Is I'm, I'm going to try to persuade you That the absurdity of Midrash Is on purpose And that's why I call the I always call this series Method of Midrash Because I will argue And I will try to demonstrate to you To your satisfaction That the Midrash purposely employs Absurdity and uh, uh, descriptions and, And claims that are not logical Or that are contradictory to other things that we know In order to bother us Okay, or exaggerations, or contradictions. There are things. For example, a very simple example of a contradiction. But we're going to get into. I'm going to start with the example that I always use. You know, for 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 an introduction. But, um, but. Just as an example of something, is that the midrash says that Og survived the flood. He held on to the outside of the ark of Noah and he survived. That's contradicted by the Torah. The Torah says that everybody died except the people who were in the ark. And yet the midrash says, no, 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 there was one guy who was hanging. For you know, so like that's an example of. Aside from the fact that it's difficult to imagine that being realistic, okay. um, just in terms of the shot of the Torah, what the Torah literally says is that every human being was wiped out. So how can the Midrash come along? But I, or I, my claim is that it's on purpose. In other words, it's, as they always say about the Pesach Seder: why do we do this? So the children will ask. Right? So it's the same thing with Midrash. Why do the rabbis say such fanciful things? So we will ask. Because once we ask, now we start to engage and we start to probe and we start to think. And every time, and the genius of Midrash, and this is what really why I love Midrash so much and why it's a topic that I I come back to again and again and become like sort of my specialty topic, I guess, um, is because it combines this, uh, uh, what I would call like educational genius, a pedagogical genius, the ability to capture the attention of the audience with an actual insight into the text. Because as crazy as a Midrash will sound to us on the surface, if we follow the lead of the Midrash, invariably, it opens up a level of understanding the text that will blow your mind every time. So we have two attitudes that we can take to. We can say, ah, the rabbis were just throwing in entertaining, fanciful stories to keep everybody awake, but they didn't really mean it. Or the rabbis were actually crazy and believed in these nonsensical things. And it's a good thing that we are more educated and we don't believe in that. Or, what I argue, which is that the rabbis knew that what they were saying was wild, and they did it in order to attract our attention, to direct our attention to ideas that we otherwise would never discover. And I'm going to give an example that is my classic example. Just like there are certain subjects that we always, uh, that, that traditionally you start with a certain topic. Like when you learn Latin, you start with the verb to love. That's like a minhag, you know. And when you, when, when you learn to be a sofer, the first thing you learn to write is the name Amalek, and then cross it out, you know? So when I teach Midrash, I've always gone back to a Midrash that, is, uh, that I find to be very persuasive in its exemplification of this method. Meaning when you see this, when, if you wanna, uh, if my goal is to show you that this method works, Okay, so I want to choose an example that I think will be undeniable that that's what the Chachamim are trying to get at, get at in the Midrash. Okay, now where do I get the idea that Midrashim are not to be just taken at face value? How do we know that Og really wasn't, that the Chachamim didn't really think Og was uh, 80 feet tall or whatever, whatever it is, however it uh, corresponds to the Amote? Um, uh, how, how do we know that? So our... Tr- the tradition that comes down to us from the po- the rabbis after the Gemara was that we don't take the midrashim literally. So if you take a look at the way the Rambam explains the midrashim, the way that Avra- Rabbi Avram ben Rambam explains it, the way the Radak explains them, the way that uh, the-, the way that the Geonim well, the Geonim don't explain them as much. A little bit here and there, very little. Like you have a few examples where they did. Even the Rashba. Even later generations, the Marsha, the Maral, they all assume that the Midrashim are more than meets the eye, that they're not simply meant to be taken at face value. The way that we're going to approach the, uh, the interpretation of Midrip Midrash I would say is inspired by the Rambam, meaning that it's not that the Rambam specifically identified these, these Midrashim and explained them in a certain way, but in, I, I would like to share with you an approach to unlocking the meaning of Midrash that is inspired by the Rambam, that from evidence that I've seen in sources associated with the Rambam school, uh, it suggests that this is how we, he would approach these midrashim, and you will be the judge of whether it makes sense or not, okay? And you'll be the judge of whether you want to pursue this as a method of explaining midrashim when you see them in the future. I can only tell you from 25 years of teaching midrashim and learning midrashim, that again and again and again, following the method uh, continues to validate the method, meaning the results continue to validate the method. But, we're going to start with an example, which is an example dear to my heart, because a student asked me about it in a class in, when I was teaching in middle school when I was 20 years old, and a light bulb went on in my head, and I, re- and, and I was able to answer the student's question, and ever since then, I've developed it into a more and more of an understanding of the whole parasha, so, uh, of this particular story. So we're going to start with this one. Um, this is a midrash. No, is I don't want to have so much background noise. Also, on the recording, people will hear a lot of background noise, I think. So... In, uh, in, in, in Parashat Vayera We know the stories I'm going to assume that everybody knows the basic narrative We all know that uh, Avram and Lot Separate at a certain point in Avram's career Lot goes and he settles In Sedom And one thing leads to another And eventually Hashem uh, decrees That he's going to destroy Sedom We know that Avram Avinu First has, first has a very impassioned tefillah Where he, uh, he requests uh, reconsideration of this decision And so on But essentially that's what's decided And Malachim go to extract Lot from Siddom To save him from the destruction of Sidon Okay Now if you have this article Chumash, It's found on page 84 If you have another Khumash I don't know what page it's on But it's, it's Perak Yud Tet It's Perik number 19 of Bereshit and, uh, and the pasuk that really that the rabbis latch onto in their midrash Which they always do to create their image That's going to be this counterintuitive and disturbing image They always use, I don't mean disturbing in a bad way I mean something to, to get us to think, right? Uh, is, uh, is in pasuk gimel, it's a, the third pasuk So we know that Lot is, is approached by two malachim That go all the way down to uh, Sedom after the three Malachim visit with Avram, so two of them continue on to sodom And it says, Vayasur, So at first they don't want to accept the hospitality, the offer of hospitality that Lot extends to them, but eventually they relent and they go. And it says, Vayasur Ela, They go with him, and it says, he made for them a mishte, usually means uh, something that involves drink, you know, some kind of a meal. Um matzot afa vayukhin. And he baked matzah and they ate Now, if you're reading it simply right? If we're reading this from a, uh, uh, the, the perspective of a literal rendition How would we un- understand the story? We would understand that what he did was the equivalent of a TV dinner In other words, instead of what Avram Avinu did Which earlier in the parasha, when the malachim came He makes a lavish, like we always say here at Beit Midrash There's going to be a lavish breakfast, there's going to be a lavish dinner Everything is lavish in SPM. <laughs> Right, it always mm-hmm. says lavish. Right, he makes a lavish meal for the Malachim. Lot does the opposite. He's umatzot That's like the simplest thing you can do. It literally takes a few minutes. You put the dough in the oven and you bake it, and we know that you know it's done very quickly. Right, so essentially, there's a contrast there. So even though Lot is extending hospitality to the strangers, he isn't quite going to the lengths of Avram in serving them. We don't see his family participating. We don't see his wife participating, which is a whole gate into another set of midrashim that we can discuss another time about the wife of Lot, who mysteriously appears later on in the story. Um, but right now, we're just seeing Lot and zeroing in on Lot. Lot decides to serve matzah for the dinner. Now, at the time. Of the story Matzah was just a food that like Bedouins ate And you know people who needed something quick and easy and simple would eat Right? Doesn't have any more significance than that So that's how a casual reader would have digested the story No pun intended But But What did the Chachamim say? What's the, what does the Midrash say? And Rashi You know in his Uh in his very simple style, he doesn't even bring the entire Midrash. If you open up Midrash Rabbah, which is a very, very overwhelming and large uh, volume, especially the Midrash Rabbah and Bereshit. there's a huge amount of material. But Rashi gives us two words. Pesach Haya. That's it. He doesn't have to elaborate. If you go into the Midrash, it will obviously be a little more wordy than that. There'll be more detail. But Rashi... Is part of the gift of Rashi Is that he selects Midrashim That are uh, especially poignant And so Rashi is saying what Really quoting Midrash Which 90% of the time what Rashi does Is he cites other sources There's a, a lot of what Rashi does Is citing statements of Chazal Only a small percentage Is his own original interpretations So he's quoting a Midrash That says it was Pesach Now a skeptic of course will come and say That doesn't really make any sense You know for a whole number of reasons First of all Pesach story didn't happen yet That's the most obvious one right So chronologically we're already off Because we're talking about hundreds of years Before Yitzhak Mitzrayim So there hasn't been an enslavement in Egypt And there hasn't been a, uh, there hasn't been a set of makot And there hasn't been a yitzyat Mitzrayim And there certainly hasn't been a yitzyat Mitzrayim At such speed that there's no choice but to bake matzah None of this has happened Of course you can get really technical and say Lot is not even Jewish So what is he doing celebrating Pesach? You know So the, so the rabbis are attaching themselves Or, or making an observation now they could have said any number of things related to matzah Brought any number of allusions that matzah carries in the Torah There are many places that matzah appears in the Torah In the Betha HaMikdash for example Matzah was used all the time They could have brought any number of other associations or connections uh, To relate to matzah Now you could say in a, in a simple, in a simple uh, a reading So what would the teacher ask? What would the teacher ask the students if they saw this, ra- this comment of Rashi What was bothering Rashi that he said this? That's what they always ask, right? And what's the answer? Why does the Torah tell us what he served for dinner? Why is that important? Now, I already gave a pshat answer that, oh, it's sort of to contrast it with Avraham Avinu and show you that he didn't go to the nth degree of hospitality. Fine. But that's a technical answer of why Rashi says what he says. I want to understand How the Chachamim, who clearly are aware of the history of the Jewish people, who certainly know that Lot is not even Jewish, and definitely know that Yitziat Mitzrayim happened many centuries after the description of what happened in Saddam, why would they decide to insert Pesach into a story about Lot in Saddam? Now, incidentally, there are many Midrashim like this, Even in Tanakh For example If you fast forward To the book of Shoftim The story of Gid'on, They also say Oh that happened on Pesach There are uh, The Chachamim Are connecting this story To Pesach For some specific reason Now you could just say Well wow The rabbis have a wild imagination You know They see the word Matzah Every every Jew Who sees the word Matzah The first thing they think of Is going to be Pesach Just like the first thing If it said Shofar The first thing you're going to think of Is Rosh Hashanah you know, the first thing they thought about, they put it in. But that, to me, robs the Chachamim of the depth that they have in reading the text. And I believe if you trust the Chachamim and you follow the lead, and instead of saying, say to yourself, the Chachamim are saying that it was Pesach when this happened. They're saying it for a reason, not just because the text has a clue about Pesach. The rabbis might even go so far as to say That the Torah specifically mentioned That there was matzah there In order to evoke In order to have an allusion to Pesach here. Okay, But that doesn't matter Whether they thought that or not The point is they want us to think of Pesach now Why did they want us to think of Pesach? Just to wake us up Because otherwise we're falling asleep during the story? No, the story is interesting right, there's, a, there's a famous Midrash in Midrash Shira About Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, That he was giving a class And everybody was falling asleep in the class And he said Did you know That there was a woman in Mitzrayim Who had in her belly At one time 600,000 600, people And her babies in her belly At the same time and, and one of the students said What? What are you talking about? And he said Yeah, it was Yocheved Because Moshe Rabbeinu Is equivalent to, to all The entire Jewish people Right? So like That was really used To, to get everyone's attention Okay? Here we don't need that because it's an exciting story already. So what is, the, what is really the, uh, the connection? So I want you to, and I think once you see it, you can't unsee it. I promise you once you see it, you'll never unsee it and you'll never see the story the same way again. But I'm going to start even further back than I normally start because over the years, I keep adding to this, uh, keep adding to this midrashic uh, a picture that they paint for us. Okay. Keeping in mind, they know that it couldn't have really been celebrating Pesach at that time. That doesn't make sense. Okay? So what does make sense is that there's something about Pesach that they want to inject into the story. What could it be? So let's take a step even further back than I normally would go. How did Lot end up in Sodom? Why did he separate from Aram? He the didn't have enough uh, pasture, right? He didn't have enough pasture, right? Why did the Jews end up in Mitzrayim? Same because there was a famine in Canaan and they didn't have any pasture. And they say, en We don't have any pasture. So we came to Eretz Mitzrayim. Lot doesn't have enough pasture In Eretz Canaan either Although really Sodom is part of Canaan But that's, that's another thing But you know He doesn't have enough Pasture where he would like to be So he goes to Sodom What else In the story of Lot Might conjure up associations to Once we start thinking Along those lines Right Once we start thinking Along those lines They have to leave in a hurry They have to leave in a hurry That's at the end already but Lot has to settle into a culture that basically embodies ideals that are exactly the opposite of what he was raised with Abram Avin. Corruption. Right, all the corruption, all the injustice, all the ugliness, all the immorality. He's trapped in, so to speak, I mean, he, did, he went there of his own volition. So did the Jews move to Mitzrayim of their own volition, right? But he's in this context... In a place that is a society, a civilization, that is contrary to every value that Avraham Avinu would have taught to him. And yet we see another thing about Lot that makes him similar to the Jewish people who are in Mitzrayim. Which is what? On the positive side. He still has a connection to that tradition of Avraham Avinu, doesn't he? Just like the Jews, as assimilated as they were, as assimilated as they were in, uh, in Mitzrayim They stayed connected to the tradition of the Avot They didn't lose their Jewish identity completely They stayed connected They knew who Hashem was When Moshe Rabbeinu comes And presents to them That I am, the, I am representing the God of your forefathers Avam Yitzchak and Yaakov They don't say who is that Right? They know what he's talking about. They know that they, had, they cried out to Hashem, in fact. The crying out to Hashem was what initiated Yitzhiat Mitzrayim. What initiated the destruction of Sodom? Cry out. ha, ha kitza akata ha ba'a elai asu Is the cry that is coming to me from Sodom commensurate with what they're actually doing? Because if so, I'm going to have to destroy them. Right? So the same thing. A cry prompts. A cry over the injustice of Sidon is what prompts the judgment of God the cry of the Jewish people in Mitzrayim is what initiates the process of redemption of Yitzhiat Mitzrayim and now we have Lot Lot's moment of truth happens in the dead of night just like we imagine the Jews in Mitzrayim sitting around having to make a, a choice They're going to make a choice. Where do we stand? Are we going with this whole Moshe Rabbeinu, Korban Pesach uh, thing? And we're going to leave everything behind and we're going to abandon everything and we're going to say that we're starting a new nation and a new derech, a new approach and we're liberating ourselves. We're choosing to go. We're finally taking the initiative to go. In other words, even when Hashem redeems the Jewish people, He doesn't take them out by their ears, right? He invites them and they have to take action and agree to it and move forward with the plan. They have to be willing. To make the move, right? They have to be willing to make a significant sacrifice Literally and figuratively Because they have to do the Korban Pesach Which essentially ends any neighborly relationship They could ever have with any Egyptian Because they are, you know, disgracing their God And disgracing their beliefs And showing that we are not Egyptian And we do not affiliate with your culture And we are not really citizens of Egypt In any way, shape, or form Ultimately, they have to make that uh, they have to make that decision and demonstrate that and follow through with that. And it happens in the dead of night. And what happens to Lot? What do the angels tell Lot? If you look on, on, on first of all, there's also an emphasis the night of the doorstep of Lot. What happens at the doorstep of Lot? They want to come in and break in and take these guests and do whatever they want to do. Okay? It's not so clear what exactly they want to do, but it was something bad. Okay? And Lot says, no, don't, don't do anything. He's standing at the doorstep. The doorstep is also a very potent symbol of Yitziat Mitzrayim because that was where they put the blood of the Korban Pesach. And what were they told? You're not allowed to leave your door until the morning. Right? That it, not allowed, a person's not allowed to leave until the morning. That was the rule in Mitzrayim. And essentially, the same thing happens that angels pull Lot back into the house when he's trying to interact with the people of Sodom and stop them. And what do the people of Sodom say to Lot? Do you remember what they say to him? They don't have a very complimentary things to say to Lot. You came here, you're not one of us, and now you judge us. Exactly. You came here to judge us, who do you think you are? That kind of indicates to you that even as much as Lot kind of blended into Sodom, he saw himself as different from them. They saw him as different. He had been there for a while, for years, seemingly. So it's not like he really was a, a, you know, was a a newcomer. And yet they saw him as somebody different and somebody who had different standards and different beliefs and a different moral code and therefore was uh, not necessarily of one Fabric with the rest of the uh, Sodom culture, in the same way that the Jewish people were perceived by the Mitzrayim. But and and that's part of possibly possibly this is somewhat speculative. Why Avram Avinu was so willing to let him go? Because I think that Avram might have thought that maybe Lot will you know do a shlichut be like a Chabad rabbi in 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 Sodom. Maybe help the help the people. It seems like maybe he he was uh, viewed that way. But that's not the main thing. The main point is that. Uh, is that Lot in this uh, in this moment? So, oh, well, first, Vaishpot Shafot—that whole idea of being judged—we see another, we see that theme also in the story of Yitzchak Mitzrayim. Does anybody remember where? Where the, well, the two Jews are fighting, and Moshe Rabbeinu tries to intervene, and they say, "Who do you think you are? are You're judging us." Same kind of a, uh, same kind of, and then he runs away, of course, after that. But. Uh, but there, there's a lot of linguistic similarities between the two. There's a lot of thematic similarities. It's about lot making, in a moment of truth, making a decision. Who am I and where do I belong? Am I going to throw my destiny, you know, with, with the people of Sodom? Or am I going to get the heck out of here? Because the place is about to be destroyed. And that was exactly what the Jewish people had to decide in Yitzhak Mitzrayim, literally exactly the same. Do I want to be part of an unjust, corrupt society and pat myself on the back that I'm a little bit better than them and just sort of bite the bullet and exist in this very, very subpar type of a circumstance? Or are we going to break free and get out, never look back, and create something new? And that's that, if you once you see that, and I want to tell you that what is the, 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 the word, besides from matzot. Okay, the word that is most tips the balance that this is 100% what the Chazal really thought was the meaning why they connected Pesach to the story of Lot. One word for me is the decisive one, which is what is it? No, it doesn't say Chipazon. But it says, it says, Vayit Mama. Well, Mashkitim is also because it talks about it's true. There's a lot of linguistic parallels. There's Tz'aka, there's Mashkit. Right, there's Petah there's a lot of language that's similar. There's the lehotzi, the whole idea of the bringing out, that the verb is mentioned many, many times, that the Malachim come and they extract Lot from Sodom, from just like Hashem came and extracted the Jewish time. The language, for sure, you can put a list of uh, 15 I once did I remember one time I ha- had a sheet Of like 15 or 20 You know Linguistic parallels Between Between the two stories But there's one That to me Is the most convincing And that is that There's only two places In the entire Torah That the word mama Is used mama means To delay Because it says Velo lehit Mamea. It says When they left Mitzrayim They could not Lehitmamea They couldn't tarry. They couldn't, they couldn't, that's why they had to make matzah. Because they couldn't tarry. They had to go with full, you know, full steam ahead. What does it say about Lot? He hesitated a little bit. He wasn't 100% sure in the end if he was going to do it. And they grabbed his hand and they pulled him out. Okay? But isn't it ironic, come to think of it, that the imagery of matzah which reflected the fact of that they weren't able to tarry, that they didn't have enough time to delay in order to break proper bread, that imagery is found with Lot and it says, and he did hesitate. Right? So I don't think it's any accident that the Chachamim are pointing this out. It was Pesach. It was a personal Pesach for Lot. And what zichut did Lot have by virtue of which he was sent Malachim to save him from Sidon Avraham, it even says That when Hashem destroyed Sidon and Amorah It specifically says Hashem remembered Avraham When, when uh, in the aftermath Of the story He sent Lot out From the upheaval Because of Avraham Avinu, same exact thing as us. What was the zechut? It was zechut avot. Because of the zechut avot of Avraham Yitzchaf Yaakov, even though we weren't fully developed, we didn't, at that stage in Jewish history, definitely had not fully internalized all that the avot stood for. Okay, it was a tenuous connection at best. At that stage of history, as we know, there was a lot more work to do. But there was enough of a connection that we had a zechut that we were taken out before things collapsed completely, before we totally assimilated and totally disappeared and would be wiped out of... Uh, out of we, would, we would have become Jewish history. You know? That would have been the end of Jewish history. Right? That, that's when Hashem pulled us out. He sent, and it even says, by the way, in, uh, when it talks about Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayishlach Malach, right? that Hashem sent a Malach and brought us out of Mitzrayim and it's talking about Moshe Rabbeinu. Meaning he sent a messenger. Here we have Malachim also who are taking the Jewish people out, uh, taking uh, Lot out of Sidon. So there's no doubt in my mind, at least, you know, that the Chachamim saw all of these connections, probably even more connections between the two stories and therefore wanted to direct our attention to what's really going on in the story of Lot. What's really going on in the story of Lot is a micro version of what happened to Am Yisrael on a national level in Yitziat Mitzrayim. But look at how beautifully Chazal can say it with two words, Pesach Hayah. That's all they had to say, Pesach Hayah. So a person who is just a casual reader will say, okay, the rabbis were playing word games, whatever they saw that it said Matzah, I'm just going to go to the next pasuk." Hmm. But the person who realizes that Midrashim contain profound insights is, wait a second, wait a second. If they're saying that it was Pesach, that means there's something Pesach related in this story. There's some theme that the Chachamim are trying to direct. They're trying to make us say, wait a second, that doesn't make any sense that it was Pesach. They want us to have that first. That first you know, response, that doesn't make any sense because that's what awakens us to start to try to dig and discover what is it that really is beneath the surface or what did the Chachamim notice that we're not noticing? And that most likely I could say, I can't say with 100% confidence, but I can say with at least about myself, with 95% confidence, I don't think I ever would have noticed all the parallels that exist between these two stories how much the stories are commentaries on each other how much you can think of the individual jew in their house on the night of pesach was struggling with the same dilemma emotionally spiritually intellectually as lot was struggling with at that moment whether to leave everything behind and to uh, and uh, you know because he realized he was in a place that contradicted the values that he stood for and that was going to be judged by god that you you know that you can see how these stories are commenting on each other, but will we ever have made a bridge between those two stories without that simple observation of the rabbis of saying, Pesach, So that, to me, is the genius of Midrash. I had a teacher like that when I was younger who would make purposely outlandish statements all the time. You know, they would say, like, some thing that he knew everybody was going to argue with him, you know, like, he would make some broad statement. I can't even remember, you know, a particular one. Make some broad statement, and uh, and then you would like. Uh, I think think one was like you know well basically a person who uh, a person who doesn't use their mind basically they're just a monkey, uh, you know uh, uh, they're basically just a uh, a more complicated monkey a more problematic monkey, or something like that. And I was like, what What do you mean? How can you say that And then he says, well, you know what is a monkey and what is a human and what does it really mean? So like he would get you to like into battle mode. You know this doesn't make any sense or and then you would start having a discussion and get some idea. So this is really what the Midrash beckons to us to, uh, to do. And to me, this is an example because I've worked over the example so many times and I've seen so much addition to it over time. I, I tend to use this example as my intro example, but it's one example of many. And one of the signature uh, uh, moves of the Midrash is something like this, something that is non-chronological. That like to say oh, this holiday that uh, d- didn't even, uh, doesn't even make any sense that they would observe it before he said in time, but they, they were observing it. Or this character who lived hundreds of years before, actually he was here hundreds of years later doing this. Or he was behind, he was, he was in the past. You know, the, the Playing around with time and space and events in order to show, in order that we'll say, that doesn't make any sense, but then we'll discover uh, a depth to it. I'll give you a, since we have time, one very, very simple, very simple one that we're not going to develop as much because I don't want to start one that I want to fully develop. I want to save that for next time. I, I want to do next time uh, the Midrashim of Og, which we never did fully. We did like the one Midrash years ago about Og hanging on to the Teva. For next week, I want to develop all the Midrashim of Og because there's a whole like constellation of Midrashim about Og and his past and and everything, and, how, and his demise, how he like tried to lift a rock, and it fell on his head, and his teeth came out, like all that cool stuff, uh, and Moshe Rabbeinu jumping up to hit his ankle, and how tall he was. Like I want to unpack all of that, but that will take time, so I don't want to rush it. I'm going to give you one more very, very, very simple example to add to your feeling of conviction that this way of interpreting Midrashim works, okay? You know what I'm going to use? It's one that I always use, okay? I'm very predictable like that. Um, if something works, they say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? If we take a look at the story of, uh, uh, and, and by the way, the story of Sodom has lots of other midrashim that are amazing. Like the story of Og comes into the part of the Sodom story and and, and there's the wife of Lot, who's a whole other thing. Maybe we'll talk about that next time too if we have time. I just want to show you one more example of a really nice uh, ob- observation by the rabbis Where you're going to be like This doesn't make any sense And then And then <clears throat> No, no um, It's a textual one more. No, no, no. Textual one if you, if you look in Parashat uh, Toledot It talks about Esa, Yaakov and Esav Yaakov and Esav And Yaakov of course has to disguise himself as Esav In order to, uh, <laughs> in order to get the vachot from, from his father You know, who can't tell who's who so he wants to, uh, he has to dress up And it turns out that, that, that Esav, being a good Jewish boy Keeps his clothes at his mom's house you know? Even though he's married and all that So his mom has his clothes to give to Yaakov to wear And it says that she took The very, very desirable, very precious clothing of Esav Rivka brings to, to, to dress up, uh, to disguise Yaakov so, what do the uh, what do the rabbis in the midrash say about this disguise? Say about this costume? Does anybody know what what costume this actually was according to Chazal? It was Nimrod's. Right, it was Nimrod's clothing. And there's another midrash that even takes it all the way back to uh, to Adam Rishon. But I don't want to go that far back because then it's going to open up a whole a whole bigger thing, and I don't want to go too. Far. I don't want to not do it justice. I just want to show you, okay, a very simple thing. So the the Chachamim say and uh, uh that that uh she brought the Big khamudot bigda asaba khamudot the very desirable uh and it says she, and rashi brings it Shechamad otan min Nimrod That he wanted them He wanted to get them from Nimrod And he got them from Nimrod The funny thing Some say that no, You know uh, There's a whole discussion About whether it was Nimrod That wanted him back from Esav Or it was Esav that got him from Nimrod There's different Mitrashim The point is that They're connecting two figures That couldn't possibly Have ever seen each other Because Nimrod lived like In the times of Noah And you know He came, came back home. Right, killing Nimrod and taking the clothing, right? There's, that's, that's, that's another Midrash, that, that's what he stole from. Then there's another one that, no, Nimrod was alive and he wanted it back. There's a different, it doesn't matter, right? The, those details don't matter that much. I, I, I want to emphasize that. In Midrash, those details don't matter that much. What matters in Midrash is, uh, is the and, and we, when we were in Israel, uh, I'll, I'll tell you the phrase that we coined when we were in Israel years ago about this. I always use the boy who cried wolf as a good example of a metaphor, right? The boy who cried wolf is about a boy that, you know, he's supposedly watching the sheep and he comes and says, there's a wolf. And the first time everybody runs out and says, oh my God, it's an Aesop's Fable, I'm pretty sure. Right? And then, and then, and then he go does it again and does it again. And then after like two or three times, like the villagers say, we don't even believe him anymore when he cries wolf. That's why that, that's the term crying wolf. Even today we use it, don't cry wolf. Okay? What happens when the wolf really shows up? Nobody comes because they already think he's just making it up. He's just looking for attention. Okay? Now, if I ask you, what is that story about? Let's say I change it to a fox from a wolf. Does it change the story? What if instead of sheep, he was watching uh, cows? Does it make a difference? No. What if instead of a boy, it's a girl? What if I said he was 15 in one story and another story is 18? Does it make a difference? No. Okay? The point of the story is, and that we started, we called it, don't focus on the wolf. Right? When you're trying to get to the heart of the metaphor, don't focus on the wolf. Don't focus on the detail. The idea is, what's the message of the story? If you lie, right? A person who's dishonest won't be believed even when they're telling the truth. Right? That's a basic message of the story. What's interesting, because in the Agadah... You do sometimes want to focus on what's different like, There's differences between two I mean, I Right, of yeah detail. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes yeah. But I think that overall The more important message is Why are they connecting Nimrod to Esav? When historically speaking That would be an impossibility Because Nimrod was long gone by the time that Esav lived Just like Og oh, seeing Abraham Avinu Or being in the time of the Teva And then fighting Moshe Rabbeinu Makes him live a thousand years you know, it's not, according to the Pshat, it's impossible. So Nimrod and Esav can't really have a relationship uh, practically, right? So that's, again, the rabbis are sending you a signal that we are telling you there's a connection between these characters and you got to look. Okay? What's a connection? And the reason why I like this example is because, again, you have a very clear textual link between the two that you can then see as a conceptual link. What is the textual link? How is Esav described in the Torah? Who knows? He was an ish said he was a man of the hunt okay now the Chachamim say that you know it doesn't just mean he was a man of the hunt of animals he was always also he was also a trickster with people he was a he was a he had a, a, the gift of rhetoric it's really the same thing because it's about manipulation you know in order to be a good hunter you have to manipulate the animal get them in the right position and also a politician does the same thing now um uh, so what's the, what's the connection to Nimrod? So if you know your Torah really well And you know the story of Nimrod You will know That how is Nimrod described in the Torah When it talks about Nimrod being the first king Basically the first person To have any kind of an empire Or anything like that What does it say about Nimrod? That he was what? He was a gibor tzayid lifnei Hashem Right? Ish Said, gibor tzayid The only two times that that Type of phrase appears Anywhere in the Torah Right He was Literally It means he was A mighty hunter Before God Just like it says About Esav That he was a Ish Zayid Still Same concept In other words That's the only Place that you find This type of term To describe a person Anywhere in the Tanakh Okay So what are the What the rabbis Did here Was something Really really amazing Which is At first you say, why are they bringing Nimrod into a story about Esav? They must have really been bored. What are they talking about? The clothes came from Nimrod. They could have picked anybody from the beginning of time. Why are they picking Nimrod? So you say, wait a second. I'm going to trust the rabbis. I have emunat chachami. I'm going to trust that they're they're really trying to say something deeper here. I'm going to go look up what Nimrod is about. And hey, what a surprise The exact same language Describes Nimrod As it describes Esav Do you think the rabbis Didn't realize that When they connected Nimrod to Esav And Esav to Nimrod And said they were wearing the same clothes There's no question in my mind That's why I like that example also Because that example It's clear That the rabbis intended that By linking the two personalities But would you ever have noticed that Maybe in a thousand years Maybe one of the Someone who's a Bal Koreh And reads will notice Oh so yeah, there's a Zayid here a there Maybe they would notice that Okay, maybe, maybe not I don't think I ever noticed it And I was a Balkhore for many years Until I looked at the Midrash And I'm like, oh, wait a second You know, that's funny That they mention Nimrod here Because Nimrod also says Tzai Now what does it show? What was Nimrod? Nimrod was a mighty hunter But he was also the first king He was a king Right? He was somebody Who was a dominant personality He's somebody who's like what we call an alpha male Right? The alpha male Who dominates his environment Okay. What was Esav? Exactly the same kind of a person. Exactly the same kind of a person. A dominant character. Somebody that, while well, Yaakov is, you know, but, you know, pathetically, you know, uh, running away, Esav, meanwhile, by the time Yaakov comes back, hasn't even just the entourage that he brings to meet Yaakov is already 400 guys. You know, and he and and it says explicitly in the Torah that these are the kings of Edom before there was ever a king in Israel, there was already a dynasty of kings coming from Edom from Esap. he was an empire builder, and Nimrod was an empire builder, and what do you see from that? You see that that there's a there's a certain personality, a certain type of character that they both had it's like Esav is taking up the mantle of Nimrod. Nimrod had this incredible empire-building ability. He had this charisma. He had the, the capacity to be dominant and the capacity to direct and to lead and to conquer. And Esav had that too. But Esav, in his case, it could have been put to a higher purpose. It could have been in partnership with Yaakov to build Am Yisrael. And what do we actually find? Yaakov himself puts on those clothes. What are the Chachamim are hinting to us Something there, right? That because the partnership of Esav and Yaakov Didn't quite work out So Yaakov to a certain extent Has to clothe himself as a type of an Esav He has to try to draw From some of that charisma And some of that strength And some of that alpha male quality In order to build a nation also He might not be able to do it as rapidly as Esav Or as impressively He definitely is not able to do that But he has to have some of that also in order to be able to build a nation to build Am Yisrael. And oh, I, and that actually reminds me of the one last thing that I forgot to mention about the story of Lot. Speaking of building nations, that in you know Lot's Exodus from uh, from Sodom also culminates in the creation of two nations, Ammon and Moab, right? So uh, it made the, you know, obviously the. Um, and the birth of Yitzchak being around the time of Pesach as well, these all of these different elements are clearly going together. The idea of nations of the family of Abraham that have a, a unique character emerging from similar circumstances. There's yeah. also... What, what I'm seeing also is like how you mentioned Giborzai Bifnei Hashem and when Yaakov dresses up with Esav's clothing that he mentions Hashem's up, name says uh, right. it smells like the fields that right. Like right. that's right that's true there's That's also a connection true. between um, the only time i ever mentioned Roshol Bashamayim um, is in the story of the Tower of Babel which is the new oh right and, and, and the, the Sulaim, Sulaim of Yaakov, of Yaakov. So right. no oh that's a good one so that's another. You have, kind of have to guess from two words. All that right. Meaning right. So what the rabbis do, and this is right. the this is the fun part of it. Okay, so to me this is the fun they part. It, the, the they give thing. you this little hint. They give you a little hint. Now I find, and I I've been doing this for a long time. Every time I go over these midrashim, I notice even more interconnections. But that's because. The rabbis are not just pointing out a word game They're actually pointing out That there's a deeper connection Between the two stories So the more you delve into those two stories The more connections and overlap you're going to see Like the fact that the Yetziah of Lot allowed him To basically create You know, first of all that he left the rest of his family Behind just like the Chazal say that you know A lot of the Jews were left behind in Egypt They didn't come Right, He created a nation. Of course it was in an illicit way. It wasn't so good. It wasn't glad kosher the way he did. But the nations emerged from there that later have interactions with the Jewish people and there's a whole complicated story there as well. And why, why Amon and Moab are faulted for not doing chesed to the Jewish people when they came out of Egypt? Why they're punished for not doing that when you realize that the whole reason that they exist is only because Lot did chesed that he learned from Abraham Avinu and that's the only reason they exist. And then when, they're, when the children of Avraham Avinu need their help, they don't help. Okay? So, like, these stories really come full circle around. But the rabbis give you this hint. And each time you review the story, you notice more and more of the interconnection. But the reason why is not because it's word games. It's because it's actually the ideas are connected. They're showing you that there's an ideational connection. So the deeper you understand each one of the stories, the more uh, points of, uh, of relationship you're going to find. That's what it's makes it so much more fun. It's what? It's it puts you into the story. It makes you look for those clues. You notice the clues. But then you're going to say, Hey, wait a second. I want to go back to the story of Nimrod and delve into it a little bit more. I want to go into Esav, delve into him a little bit more. I wonder what other insights I can gain from reading these two stories together. Another famous example is Eliyahu Navi being the same person as Pinchas. And again, for a very obvious reason. Because Pinchas is Kinah Right, that that it was uh, uh, that it talks about uh, the idea of zealousness in the case of Pinchas, and what does it say about Eliyahu? Kanokineti, I was a zealot for you, and he acted in a very aggressive way to try to wean the people away from idolatry in the same way that Pinchas acted in a very zealous and aggressive way. So saying that these two people are the same person is saying that they exhibit the same character. But then the more you read the story of Pinchas and the more you read the story of Eliyahu, the more you will see overlapping and interconnection and what they call today in fancy terms intertextuality that texts are really commenting on each other that the story of Eliyahu is in a way a commentary on the story of Pinchas that you can see them in light of each other. And what, that, that Eliyahu's failure shows you that, yeah, Pinchas' action was good in an isolated incident, but it's not a good methodology for Kiruv to go uh, stabbing people through the stomach on a regular basis. is not the way to do it, right? Which is why we read the Haftarah of Eliyahu when Eliyahu was told by Hashem, no, that's not the way to go, okay? So, there's a, there's a, so once you see that these Midrashim... When you see a Midrash that makes no sense, that means it's probably even more exciting than the ones that do make sense. So, but did it, did it happen or not, that, not? Is it true or not true? Oh, up, very up. good question. I love the question, okay? Did you hear this question? Okay, so is Midrash true or not? So I, I'm going to throw the question back at you. And I'm going to ask you, is the boy who cried wolf true? The idea is 100% true. Did that actually happen that way, that there was a kid with a sheep and a wolf and all that? Possibly that never happened, but the idea is 100% true. So when I look at a Midrash, is it true that it was really, that he was really celebrating Pesach? Literally and historically, I don't think it's true that he was really saying Kadesh Khatz and celebrating Pesach. But do I think the idea that the rabbis are showing, that there's really a connection between these two stories conceptually is true 100% so it, it is true, is it true? oh so we're gonna get to that one next week when we get to that one so again so again right literal and true are not the same thing right literal and true are two different things I don't want the story of the boy who cried wolf to be literally true because that actually loses its meaning what makes it special is that it's it's it, the idea is true. If it was just some story about some kid named Jack that, you know, did that, I would be like, okay, that's, that's, a, that's just a story. But the fact that it's a story that's a, uh, that, that is not limited by its literalness, it's the idea that's true, or in this case, the fact that we see that the Chazal are showing us relationships between the ideas and the stories, we can continue to develop the ideas and we'll see deeper and deeper connections they guided us towards. Whereas if we just say, oh, they're just telling you a factual information, it happened on the 15th of Nisan, what does that give me? It doesn't give me as much. Right. So I don't look at it as factual or true. I look at it as true in the sense of the idea is true. I have a question for Robin. Is the book of George Orwell? Is it it true? Right. Say that about any any type of metaphor. Not true, no. But the ideas are true, right? The message can be true, but the vehicle that it's is is using fiction as a vehicle, or using sometimes the Chazal use, right? Sometimes they use exaggeration. Sometimes they purposely. But my point is that the method of midrash is to purposely go against your common sense, so you will say, "Wait a second, that doesn't make any sense." And then you start to investigate, and then you discover. So, Bezrat Hashem, next week I think we'll try to do Og in the book that I've been writing about midrash. That Bezrat Hashem, one day, you know, after a hundred more years, will be finished. The the first midrash that I actually analyze in the book is the Og one. So I'm gonna like pilot it. Yeah, yeah. Do you have?